to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Today is uh, Resurrection Sunday, traditionally um, the day on which the church celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. And um, I think it's uh, very appropriate that we talk this morning about exactly that, about the resurrection. Um, I I saw a quote uh, by um, a gentleman called Andy Stanley. Uh, you know, we so often as Christians and and. Um, I'm, I'm sure not not all of us uh, here this morning are necessarily Christians, but um, you know those of us who are Christians, we become so used to the concept of the resurrection that we hardly notice it anymore. Now it's like, you know, when I was, you know, when we we as Gautengers, when we go to the Cape, you know, we see the mountains. It's like, oh, you know, it's so beautiful. These awesome, majestic mountains, and we see the sea, and oh, look at the vastness of the sea, and it's just so, so beautiful to us. Um, but guess what, you know, when you've been living in the Cape for a few years, you hardly even notice it anymore. <laughs> the vineyards, the mountains, the sea, most of it's pretty much lost on you. <laughs> you drive past it and you like, uh, see that every day, you know. And, and, you know, we so easily become like that with the resurrection of Jesus. And, and we forget how surprising it was to the early disciples. How surprising it was, uh, and, and, and how, you know, how spectacular and how significant it really is. Um, like Andy Stanley said, you know, nobody expected nobody. Nobody expected nobody. Everyone, you know, I mean, even, even the, the, the early witnesses like Mary Magdalene who went to the, to the tomb, you know, the, the early disciples, Peter and the gang, um, the religious leaders, you know, the, the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin and so on, you know, nobody expected nobody. I mean, when, when, when Mary Magdalene went, she went with spices and stuff to go and, go and um, anoint and embalm Jesus' body. She expected to find a body there. And all of them were surprised. I just want to read you a few passages. I'm, I'm going to focus on, on John chapter 20, verse 24 to 31, but I also just want to read um, from verse 1 to 9, just to, to give a bit of context. It's not, uh, verse 1 to 9 is not up on the screen, so you can just listen. It says in John 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Just two things, by the way. Um, this one uh, Jewish rabbi refers to John's gospel as the most Jewish of the gospels. Now, if you know, if you know, um, you know, gospels like Matthew and how intensely Jewish they are, you know, if, to say that John's gospel is the most Jewish of the gospels is saying a lot. Um, the reason why Mary Magdalene didn't go, why she came on early on the first day of the week, which is the which is Sunday, was because she's a, as a typical Jew, she didn't want to do any work on the Sabbath, Saturday, the, the seventh day of the week. Um, and that's why she didn't come on the Sabbath the previous day, but she, she waited until the Sabbath was over and came on the first day of the week. Um, and um, 
That is also the reason why Christians gather for the most part on Sundays, the first day of the week, and not on Saturdays like, like Jews on the seventh day of the week. It's to celebrate the resurrection. It's to celebrate that on the first day of the week he rose again. Every Sunday that we come together, we celebrate the resurrection implicitly, merely by the fact that we gather on this day. And then verse 2 said, listen to her response when she saw the stone rolled away. Listen to her response. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's a bit funny that <laughs> John was going to make sure that everyone knew for all eternity that it was recorded in Scripture that he outran Peter. He beat him to the tomb. It sounds, it sounds like my two kids, you know, Kirsten's eight and Justin's seven, and, and they're always competing. You know, in the mornings when we go to school, when we walk to the car, everything's a competition. You know, they run, and then the one who comes, when, when Kirsten beats Justin, Ju- um, Justin always says, it's not a, it's not a race. It's not a race. <laughs> All of a sudden, then it's not a race. But, you know, it was a race when he still had a chance to win. <laughs> and then in verse 5, it says, and, they, uh, and, and stooping to look in, he, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth, cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, you can see he's emphasizing it, you know, he wants to make sure everyone remembers he reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In fact, they had not even understood the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, which is referring to that he had to die. I just want to read you um, one or two verses, well, actually a few verses from one of the passages which records in the Old Testament. Now, this is written by Isaiah the prophet uh, and probably around 700 years before Christ. Now, 700 is a, a long time. Now, and and, and th- this passage so accurately reflects or prophesies the death and resurrection of Jesus that um, many skeptics refuse to believe that it could have possibly been written before Christ. So they say it must have been written afterwards. The only problem is, I mean, we have documents of Isaiah predating Christ. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found documents, uh, original Hebrew documents, dating to about 100 years before Christ. And we also have the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was translated between about 250 and 150 before Christ. So we know that, that a few hundred years before Christ, this was not, these texts didn't only exist, but they were translated into Greek. So there's ample, irrefutable evidence that this was not written after the crucifixion and the resurrection, but long before it, hundreds of years before it. Now listen to what it says. This is Isaiah 53 from verse 4. It says, 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. Can, can you see the, how, how specific it is? It doesn't only say that he died, it says how he died. He was pierced. He was crucified. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought, uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was God's doing. This was not some other tragedy, you know, the evil Romans and, 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 uh, you know, the, 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 the leaders in the Sanhedrin who were jealous. This wasn't, you know, just about people. This was God's doing. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, uh, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. Notice, he was cut off from the land of the living. He's talking about this individual, the Messiah. The, the suffering servant, as he's often called. He was cut off from the land of the living. He, was, he would die, Isaiah prophesies. Um, stricken for the transgressions of my people. In other words, he was cut off from the land of the living, but not for anything that he had done. He was stricken for the transgressions of the people. In other words, he would be killed for other people's sins, not for his own. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Joseph of Arimathea provided his grave. One of the, actually, one of, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, um, some of the members of the Sanhedrin actually believed him, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So he gave his grave. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So it says, on the one hand, he's cut off from the land of the living, but then it also says, on the other hand, he shall see his offspring and rejoice. So after his death, he will see his offspring. He'll see those who believe in him and rejoice. So implicit in this prophecy, 700-odd years before Christ, is the reality that the Messiah would not only die, but he would die for the sins of others, and he would rise again. But the disciples, it says, didn't understand it at that stage yet. They, they didn't get it. They didn't get scriptures like that yet. And then in verse 24, it says, um, and here's one of the first skeptics, Thomas called Doubting Thomas, but it's a, it's a little bit of an unfair label. You know, to be honest, if you go and read, I'm not going to read it now because I don't have time, but if you go and read uh, John 11, you know, verse 8 and, and verse um, 14 to 16, you see Jesus um, talks about that he's going to die, and, 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 the, and the, or that he's going to Jerusalem, and the disciples say, but hang on, hang on, hang on. why do you want to go to Jerusalem? You know, the, the, you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the guys in the Sanhedrin want to kill you. They tried to kill you before when you were in Jerusalem. That's why you left. Remember? <laughs> now you want to go back. And Jesus says, no, I must go. I must go and die. And then Thomas says, 
well, let us go and die with him. So it's, it's not like he was a coward. It's not like he wasn't committed to Jesus. He, he, was, he was willing to die with Jesus. I mean, he obviously misunderstood, you know. He didn't understand scriptures like this, which says that the Messiah had to die. You know, you couldn't die with the Messiah. <laughs> this is something that only the Messiah could do. And he also didn't understand what Jesus was saying about, I will not only die, but I will rise again. He didn't understand that yet. But anyway, it says in verse 24, uh, John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus had come a week earlier uh, to the disciples, appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, uh, in his hands the marks, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will, side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his um, disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your ha- your hand and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your word. We want to thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, that it's not like the newspaper. That it's not like any other book. That it's not like the Quran or the Bhavad Gita. Lord, your word is the only, only writings that tell us what happened in the past, what's happening in the present, and what will happen in the future. It's the only supernatural book that accurately contains accurately fulfilled prophecies there's nothing else like it and we thank you that we can trust in your word and we thank you that we can learn from your word but lord we, we pray lord that you'll open up our eyes by your holy spirit to see jesus anew to see you father god anew the way you truly are to know you as you reveal yourself to us. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you'll remove every obstacle in our hearts, every doubt in our hearts. Lord, that skepticism, Lord, that, that we often share with Thomas, we pray, Lord, that you will come and turn it into faith so that we may have life in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you know, so many modern skeptics say that the early disciples were gullible. The only reason they believed in the resurrection is because they so desperately wanted to. And they were predisposed to believe in the resurrection. They were, they were conditioned. They wanted to believe in the resurrection. Uh, and it was wishful thinking. 
And, 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 and them seeing supposed resurrection appearances was only wish fulfillment. I, I, have you ever heard that? And, and, and in those days, by, in any case, you know, uh, the skeptics will go on. People were m- much more gullible than we are. We, we, we're very skeptical and we want to see evidence. But in those days, people were very gullible. And, and can you see that this passage flies in the face of all of that? If there's one thing we can see from this passage, from this chapter, is that the early disciples were not gullible. In fact, nobody expected nobody. (laughs) And all of them, not only Thomas, all of them were quite skeptical initially. Um, And another thing I want you to, to just notice here is, which is a bit surprising, ask yourself this. Verse 30, John 20 verse 30 says, many other things Jesus did that are not recorded, that are not written down. Okay, so, so there were a lot of stuff, a lot of miracles, a lot of signs, a lot of things that Jesus did and said that could have been written down in this book, but that weren't. In other words, John is very selective. In fact, if you go and check his gospel, and you take the chronology of his gospel, he records only about 21 days, three weeks, 21 days in the life of Jesus. And yet this account of Thomas which leads into his purpose statement of this is recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Actually, it says that, that, that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. Is recorded as the climax of John's gospel. Why, if he's so selective, does he choose this passage and this episode to be the climax of his gospel? Clearly, if he does, it's quite important. It's quite significant. So let's have, have, um, have, a, uh, have a look at that. It says in verse, verse 31, but this is written that you may believe. Literally, I think a better translation would be that the Messiah, because the, the word Christ, I mean, I, you know, it's one of those words that we again become used to because we use it so often and we forget that it's just a Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach. And I was the anointed king of the Jews, the descendant of David, the son of David. We, we, we forget that, you know, that, that this, so he's saying that this Messiah, the son of God is Jesus. And that by believing that you may have life in his name, that's the reason why this is the climax. Because he wants you to see and to understand and to realize what Thomas realized and what produced life in him. Because what produced life in him can produce life in us. Um, Now, just another thing. So many modern people want to do away with the historical events around Jesus. We like Jesus' teaching. I mean, he was such a good man. He was a good prophet, a good teacher, a good moral teacher. You know, we like all of that. We like his teachings. But, you know, all this historical stuff about him supposedly rising from the... Why is that even necessary? Now, let's just follow his teaching. And, and what, what John is saying, that is not going to give you life. That is not going to give you life. Because if we only, I mean, his teachings are important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that his teachings are not important. They are important. But if we only had his teachings, then Christianity would be about what we do. But what John is saying is it's not just about his teaching. It's not just about what we must do. It's what, about what he has done. 
about His death and the resurrection. That is what brings life. All other religions are religions of do. Christianity is a religion of done. All other religions are religions about what we must do to reach God, to build a stairway to heaven, to reach heaven by our good works and by what we can do. You, you name any other religion. That is basically what it comes down to. It's relig- religions of work. Work that we must do. Not Christianity. Christianity is not about what we must do. It's about what He has done for us and in our place. Radically different. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that we cannot do what we're supposed to do. So we had to have someone do it. The Messiah do it in our place. For us. Christianity is not a religion of do. I mean, so many churches, by the way they preach the gospel, try and make it a religion of do, doing. It's not a religion of do. It's a religion of done. It's what Jesus has done. And that's what, what John is emphasizing in this passage. So I'm just going to look, uh, divide this passage up into to three sections. My three main points, I'm just going to tell you up front what they are. Uh, verse 20 and 24, the, unbelieving, the unbelief of an unseeing skeptic, Thomas. And, th- and that records the fact that Thomas missed the first visit of Jesus. And then verse 26 to 28 records when a week later when Jesus actually comes and visits them again and Thomas is present. The belief of a seeing skeptic. My second point. And then Jesus switches over and John also switches over and starts talking about the parallel between Thomas's faith and our faith. So it changes from recording what happened to Thomas to addressing us. The blessedness of, uh, of unseen believers. Because just like Thomas initially missed Jesus, didn't see Jesus physically with his first visit to the apostles, we also don't see him physically, do we? Okay, so let's, let's look at uh, verse 24 and 25. The, the unbelief of an unseeing skeptic. Um, notice that, that the early disciples were not just gullible witnesses. They, you know, so, so many people say, no, you know, in those days, people were unscientific. So when they saw something that they didn't understand, that didn't make sense, they immediately jumped to supernatural conclusions. That was their knee-jerk reaction. They were, they were superstitious, you know, and, 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 and not scientific like us. We, we're scientific because when we see something we don't understand, we try and find a natural explanation for it. They weren't like that. They were superstitious, so they just immediately jumped to a supernatural conclusion. But did you notice in verse 1 and 2, when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, it says on the first day of the week, um, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Listen, she runs to, to, to Peter and, 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 um, and John and listen to what she says. Listen, listen to the first assumption she makes. Listen to her explanation of what happened. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Her initial explanation of it was not a supernatural explanation. Someone stole the body. That was her explanation. Right? She didn't expect the resurrection. She wasn't gullible in that sense. So, so, so this excuse that people said, oh, they were gullible people who just jumped, immediately jumped to supernatural conclusions. That's not true. The first conclusions they drew were natural conclusions. They tried to find natural explanations. Well, the body's not there anymore. Someone must have taken it. That's the most plausible natural explanation for it. 
Can you see? They weren't gullible. They weren't gullible, superstitious witnesses. Secondly, you know, people will often say, oh, but they, they lived in a gullible society. People back then, you know, in general were, were just, you know, so gullible, you know, and, and, and they, they tended to, you know, something like belief in a resurrection or in miracles was much more popular and, and much more acceptable those days than it is today. Really? Listen to what Acts 17 from verse 29 says. Peter's preaching to, no, Paul's preaching, sorry, to the, uh, to a bunch of, uh, philosophers. Um, and, and he says, being, uh, being there, being then God's offspring, we, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God ov- uh, overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is their response to that? Oh, yes, talk to us about the resurrection. We, we want to believe in the resurrection. No. It says, and, some, uh, and when they heard of the resurrection... From the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear on this again. The response was exactly the same as modern people's response if you told them someone rose from the dead. They mocked. Oh, rising from the dead, you know. What are you talking about? That's impossible. We know people don't rise from the dead. You see, the society in general wasn't gullible. They weren't predisposed to believe in these kinds of things. They were skeptical. They were skeptical. And then, we, you know, sometimes people also say, yeah, but, um, you know, uh, people, people in those days were, were gullible in the sense that they, they tended to believe things without seeing evidence or proof or without requiring evidence or proof. Really? Look at Thomas's, Thomas's answer. When the other disciples uh, tell him that we have seen the Lord that is risen, Listen to what Thomas says. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Look what Thomas is doing. He's saying, I want empirical evidence. That is what I want. I want empirical evidence. And not only empirical evidence... I'm not only going to trust, I'm not going to uh, say that it's enough to have empirical evidence from one of my senses. I don't just want to see the marks in his hand. I want to put my finger in I want to touch it. I want at least two of my physical senses to verify empirically that Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, I'll never believe it. Does that sound like a gullible witness to you? That sounds pretty much, you know, the same types of things that, that we as modern people would expect the same kind of evidence that we would expect before we believed right sounds very skeptical to me and then uh, it says um, in verse 25 um, so the other disciples told him we have seen the lord now it doesn't the translation there masks um, something the, the, the greek word was and 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 the other disciples were saying to him it's, it's a, what they call an imperfect, uh, a past continuous tense. They were continuously saying, it's not they mentioned it once. They were, they were like talking, discussing this with him and saying, because this is just a summary. 
saying, listen here, you know, probably for, for a few hours saying to him, because it's only a week later that, that Jesus appeared to Thomas as well, saying to him, listen, Thomas, we, I mean, all of us, the 10 of us and, and all the other disciples, we were there, we saw him. And Thomas is like, no, no. It's not like they mentioned it once. They were kept on saying it over and over again. And Thomas was just, no, talk to the hand. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I, I just cannot believe this. I just cannot believe this. It's not something they mentioned once. It's something they mentioned over and over again. They tried to convince him. They probably tried to persuade him. And he was so skeptically, he was saying, no, I, unless I see the empirical evidence for myself, unless I verify it empirically, I'm not going to believe. I'm never going to believe. Notice he says, I'll never believe. In, in, the, in the Greek, it's emphatic. They, they, they use both words for not in the Greek. Ume, you know, I'll never believe. So he's, he's, he's like a, a very emphatic skeptic. In other words, they were not. Thomas was not eager to believe. It, it's not just wish fulfillment. He was not just eager to believe and he believed because he wanted to believe so badly. He was very skeptical. And then, you know, just to round it off, um, I'm not going to look at that scripture in Galatians 2 verse 23, but, I mean, beyond that, you didn't only have skeptical witnesses. You had hostile witnesses like Paul, Saul, who became Paul the Apostle. He was one of the guys, it says there in Galatians 2 verse 23, you know, he persecuted the church. He tried to destroy it. He tried to destroy this faith, this confession that on the third day he rose again. He tried to suppress that, oppress that, and destroy it. Wipe it from the face of the earth until he himself met the one who on the third day rose again. And, and he met him on the way to the masses to go and persecute and silence these heretics, according to him, these blasphemers who were saying that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was the Messiah. He met this Messiah. And all of a sudden, this hostile witness who was persecuting the church turned around and he started preaching the faith that he persecuted, that he oppressed, that he tried to destroy. I mean, if it were not true, if the resurrection were not true, why would someone like Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, who tried to suppress the testimony that on the third day rose, why would he preach the resurrection? Why? I mean, it would have been a massive embarrassment to him if he were wrong. Not only to him, but to the Jewish leaders. I mean, yeah, Paul was the, the poster boy. I, he got letters from the high priest and stuff to go and catch, you know, the, the, the Christians, you know, take them out of their houses and whatever, and throw them in jail and even kill them. He was more zealous than everyone. I mean, the, the high priest was probably saying, guys, you know, I wish you were all like Saul. Why can't you all be as zealous as him? He's actually doing something. He's actually going after these guys. Sorry. He's actually going after these guys. And we're just sitting around here, you know, complaining about it. He's actually putting his money where his mouth is and going after these guys. And here, this poster boy for the law and for the oppression of the Christian testimony that Jesus rose on the third day, he turns around and he starts saying this. Thomas was saying, unless I see the holes in his hands, put my fingers in them and put my hand in his side, I will not be. What is he saying? He said, listen here guys, I know he died on the cross. I was too chicken to see it up close, but I stood at a distance and I saw it. And I saw, I saw the soldier take that spear and stick it into his side. 
you, you, I'm not going to read it now, but, but John 19 verse 34 says, um, they broke the other, the thieves who hung on either side of them, broke their, his, their legs so that they would die quicker, you know, so they couldn't push themselves up to breathe. Because when you hung on the cross like this, you, you hung on your own body weight, so you couldn't breathe. So you had to pull yourself up by the nails, either by your arms or push yourself up by your feet, you know, the nails on your feet. So they, they broke the legs so that, you know, their arms would get too tired and they couldn't, they would, they would um, suffocate, you know, so they, they'd die quicker. But then when they got to him, he was already dead. So they took a spear and they stuck it into his side, into his heart, and, and there came a sudden flow of blood and water. Why a flow of blood and water? Because his heart had already stopped bleeding. Oh, so stopped beating. So, so, so the, the, blood, the, the blood was standing still in his body, so it was settling out. That's why blood and water flowed. So he was medically dead. And Thomas says, I saw that. I know there are holes in his hands and there's a hole in his side where the spear was stuck in. I know he was dead. There's no way I'm going to believe he's alive unless I see the same Jesus with the same holes and the same spear thrust in his side. I will not believe it. So far from being gullible, Thomas and the early disciples were initially rather skeptical about the resurrection. So let's look at the second point. The belief of a seeing skeptic. So Jesus comes and he he rebuked Thomas for his unbelief on the one hand. Because the the other disciples have said to him, we've seen the Lord. In other words, he's heard an eyewitness testimony. So so Jesus rebukes him for not believing. But then on the other hand, and, and it seems like Jesus is almost saying, you know, you don't need this evidence. You shouldn't need this evidence. And yet he gives him all the evidence that he demands. He says, come look. Come look at my hands. Come look at my side. See for yourself. So now we have to ask, why? Why does Jesus, on the one hand, rebuke him for his unbelief, but on the other hand, give him all the evidence that he requires? And the follow-up question, why doesn't Jesus do the same for modern-day skeptics? Why doesn't Jesus come to them like he came to Thomas and says, stick in your hand there, stick, in, stick your finger in my hand, stick your, your hand in my side. Why doesn't Jesus do that? I mean, wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that just make it so easy and everyone would believe? Let me just read you a passage. For some other reason, that's not the way God chose to do it. Um, In Acts 10, verse 39 to 43, this is when Peter was preaching to the first Gentile converts, um, Cornelius and his household in Caesarea. It says in verse 39, Acts 10, verse 39, And we are witnesses of all that he did, this is that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, whom he had cho- who, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who, are, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. They actually ate and drank with him. I mean, a ghost can't eat and drink. Okay. And he says, and he commanded us to preach to the people, and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To, uh, to him all the prophets bear witness, in the Old, Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Scriptures of Israel, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So, what Peter is saying here is that the way God works is that he's given sufficient evidence. 
But the sufficient evidence is not Jesus appearing to every single person and showing his hands. But he appeared to certain reliable chosen witnesses. And he gave them many, according to, to Acts chapter 1, many infallible proofs. Eating with them, drinking with them, having him, them touch him, speaking to them. Not once. I mean, you always hear these, these, these accounts, you know, of you know, someone saw the, what shall we call it, uh, a UFO or a, um, you know, the, 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 the abominable snowman, you know. But then when you ask them, when you interview them, it's, yeah, you know, we were walking and was, there was this blizzard. And we saw this dark figure moving there, you know, a couple of dozen meters away. And we, we sort of looked and it was just, it just looked too big to be a normal human being. It must have been the abominable snowman. You saw him once at a distance with, clear, uh, with, uh, with very bad visibility. It wasn't like that with Jesus. They saw him many times over a period of 40, not just one person. Dozens of people at once, over a period of 40 days, up close, touched him, saw him, spoke to him. Many times. I mean, the, the kind of evidence is way different. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. And he gave these eyewitnesses, he's saying these eyewitnesses, we are the ones that testify. Now, um, it says in, in, in John 20 verse 24 that Thomas was one of the twelve. So what's happening here is Jesus first rebukes Thomas for not believing the eyewitnesses and then he invites Thomas to become one of the eyewitnesses because he's one of the twelve. He's one of the apostles. He's one of those on whose testimony our faith is based. Um, So Thomas um, goes on and he makes one of the greatest statements of faith in the whole New Testament. Listen to this. My Lord... And my God. Now, some people look at that, and, they, and, they, and, and we look at that, and it doesn't surprise us because we don't think of it that clearly. Think who's speaking. When, when Thomas says, My Lord and my God, who's speaking, and whom is he speaking to? Thomas is a Jew. Jews were monotheistic to the core. Jesus was a Jew from the tribe of Judah. A very committed Jew. He said that the scriptures, the Old Testament, cannot be broken. And here is this committed monotheistic Jew saying to another committed monotheistic Jew, My Lord and my God. We, we, don't, we should find that very surprising. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, it's so surprising that many, many scholars say no, no, no first century Jew would ever say anything like that. It's unthinkable. He, he, he must have not been speaking to Jesus. It must have been an exclamation. You know, like you know, you know, many people say, oh my God, you know, it must have been something like that. But the problem is it clearly says in verse 28, and Thomas said to him, Jesus, my Lord and my God. He was addressing Jesus. It clearly says that. This was not just some general exclamation. Oh my God, you know what's going on here? He was looking at Jesus and seeing Jesus and, 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 and everything that happened there. And he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, my teacher and my helper. That's not what's going to save you. We need more than a teacher. We need more than a helper. He said, my Lord and my God. It's faith in Jesus as Lord and God that saves 
Notice also the similarity with the beginning of the gospel. We're at the end of the gospel here, but notice the similarity in the beginning. In the beginning, God, John's gospel begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. And then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and came to dwell amongst us. This Word who was God came to dwell amongst us. And, 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 and this, is, this is shocking because... I mean, these were monotheistic Jews. How on earth can John and Thomas and Je- I mean, G- remember when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the, in the wilderness? One of the things that Satan says is, you know, he shows him all the kings of the world. He said, I'll give you all of this, all these kingdoms of the world, if you just fall down and worship me. What does Jesus respond? What's his response? Get behind me, Satan. For the law, Deuteronomy says, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. Jesus did not tolerate worship of anyone except God. And yet Jesus, who tolerated no worship of anyone except Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, accepts Thomas's worship when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. In the next verse he says, okay, now because you've seen, you've believed. Do you realize how shocking this is? Do you realize how unexpected this is? What's going on here? And, 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 and Thomas's confession is not by accident. If you go and, I'm not going to read it now, but if you go and read, for instance, Mark 12, verse, verse 29, when Jesus asked what's the greatest commandment, he quotes the so-called Jewish Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Yero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And in, in, the, in, the, in the Greek, he says, Yero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the same word for Lord and the same word for God is used. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So, so what's happening here is Thomas, his eyes, and, and I, imagine how shocked he must have been to discover this as a monotheistic Jew. But he's, to his absolute shock, discovering this man... This first century Palestinian Jew I've been walking with for a couple of years is God. He's Lord. The word Lord, kurios in the Greek, is the translation of the Hebrew Yahweh. And, and the word Theos in the Greek is the translation of the, of the Hebrew Elohim. And all of a sudden he realized something. The word Elohim, by the way, is in plural. El means God and Elohim is, is, is the plural for God. Why does it use the plural when it says the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The God there, the, the, the word God there is in the plural. Why? I'm, I'm sure he, uh, so many things must have been going through his mind, but, but maybe for the first time he understood why in Genesis 1 God says, let us make man in our image. And all of a sudden he, he understood why when, 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 when in the Shema he says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, he's one, but he uses Elohim, the plural form of God. You can just imagine the massive paradigm shift that must have been going on in this monotheistic Jew's mind. Yes, God is one, but like we sang, he must be three in one. How can the one God refer to himself as us? Let us make man in our image. How can he refer to himself as Elohim, sort of in the plural? All of a sudden, all of those scriptures must have been coming up in his mind and starting to make sense to him. And a massive paradigm shift must have been happening in his head. 
And he started realizing something he'd never seen before. So what can we learn from Thomas's faith? I mean, Thomas makes this shocking, surprising confession of faith. My Lord and my God. What brought him to this? Now can we learn from it? Well, the first thing we can, we can learn, and the first, uh, the, here's the thing, the same thing that allowed Thomas to have this faith allows us to have this faith. The same thing that allowed Thomas to grow in faith can allow us to grow in faith. The first thing in, in, in John 20 verse 9, it says they didn't yet understand the Scriptures. So the first thing we need to do is understand the Scriptures. Like Thomas was now coming to understand the Scriptures. That Jesus was had to die, the Messiah had to die and rise again, and that the Messiah was actually Yahweh and Elohim. Second, believe the eyewitnesses. And the others were saying to him, we saw the Lord. We are eyewitnesses. We saw it. And Thomas is rebuked for not believing them. So we must believe the eyewitnesses' accounts. Let me just read you two other passages in, in John's Gospel um, that relate to this. John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays, his so-called high priestly prayer, and he says, I do not ask for, those, for these only, talking about his early disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus was already in John 17 praying for us who would believe through their word. And he expects us to believe in their word. John 19, right sort of in the midst of, of the um, crucifixion, in verse 24, like I said, it says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may, you also may believe. So John, who's writing the gospel, considers his eyewitness testimony to be sufficient for us to believe. Um, but then also notice Jesus' spectacular entrance. He makes a big entrance. The doors are locked. The disciples are still afraid of the Jewish. I mean, they just killed their leader, Jesus. And to round up the rest of the gang and execute them wouldn't be very difficult. So the doors were locked. And while the doors are locked, Jesus walks in to this locked room and stands in their midst. If you just go a few verses back to the beginning of the, of the chapter, Peter walks into the empty tomb and he sees the linen strips lying there and the face cloth that was covering Jesus' face folded up. So it's saying two things. I mean, if, if Jesus were just a ghost, if it were just a, you know, a, a spiritual resurrection, I mean, he wouldn't be able to fold up the face cloth, right? You need physical hands to be able to... So it, it was a physical resurrection. But there's a contrast, an intended contrast with what happened in chapter 11 with Lazarus. Remember what happened with Lazarus? Jesus stood at the tomb, he wept, and then he said, Lazarus, come forth! What happened? Lazarus came bouncing out of the tomb, wrapped in linen cloth, exactly the same words, linen cloth, with a face cloth over his head. Exactly the same words. When Jesus resurrected, those linen cloths just fell through him, through his resurrection body. He could take off the face cloth and fold it up and put it on the side. When Lazarus came out, Jesus had to say, Loose him. Take off those, those linen cloths. In other words, Lazarus was just resuscitated. Poor Lazarus would die again. <laughs> One of a few people who had the privilege. <laughs> 
<laughs> the pleasure of dying twice. Yippee. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he was just resuscitated. Jesus was not just resuscitated. He was resurrected never to die again. He had a glorified body. And that glorified body, even though you could touch it, even though he could eat fish and stuff with it, he could walk through walls with it. Boom, right there. Into a closed, locked room. Through the wall, through the door. We don't know how. What we do know is one day we're going to have bodies like that. That's going to be sports. We're going to be superheroes, right? We're going to be able to walk through walls one day with our glorified bodies. People are going to be able to shoot at us and nothing's going to happen. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to get tired. You're not going to even have to sleep. Jesus' resurrection and his glorified body means that we're going to have the same. He was the first to rise from the dead, to be resurrected, but he's not the last. We're going to follow him if we believe in him, if we have life in his name. So, Jesus, all of a sudden, you know, because Jesus walks into this locked room, Thomas realizes, I'm not dealing with a normal person here. It's clearly, it's clearly not a ghost, he's, you know, He's a, phys- he's a physical resurrection, but he's not normal. Something strange going on here. This guy can appear anywhere. Not only that, he says to Thomas, Thomas, come here. See my hands. Thomas, put your finger in the hole. Thomas, put your hand in my side. Here's the question. How? This is the question that must have been going through Thomas's mind. How on earth does Jesus know I asked for that? How on earth does he know I asked for that? Now, Jesus with his resurrection body walking into the locked room probably made Thomas realize, along with this, the fact that Jesus knew what Thomas had asked a week earlier, even though Jesus wasn't there. He realized this guy is omnipresent. This guy is all-knowing. He knows what I'm talking about and what I'm thinking even when he's not there. Do you realize now why he's referring to Jesus as Lord and God? To his shock, he was realizing this is not who I thought he was. He's a lot more than I thought he was. This is big. He knows everything about me. But think about this. Think about this. If Jesus knew everything about Thomas, he knew the silly questions he'd asked, you know, the, his, his, his doubts and his skepticism. He knew his doubts. He knew about them. And yet, when he comes into the room, he says, Shalom Alechem, peace be with you. How can he know everything that Thomas is thinking? And let's apply it to us. How can he know everything I'm thinking and still speak peace to me? You know your thoughts. You know your thoughts. You know what you think sometimes. You know what you say sometimes. You know everything you think and everything you say doesn't always please God. You know that. I know that. We all know that. And here is someone, Jesus, who knows exactly what we're thinking, who knows everything we say, 
And he says to us, like he says to Thomas, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. How can a holy God who knows everything we think and everything we say, all the silly statements we make, all the doubts we have about him, how can he speak peace to us? And that's the other thing that Thomas realized. Those holes in his hands, that hole in his side, it was for me. That is the reason why, even though he knows everything about me, he can still love me and speak peace to me. It's because he died for me. All my silly statements, all my doubts, he died for them. And that's why I can say peace to you, even though I don't deserve it, even though I know I don't deserve it, just like Thomas knew it. And that's why Thomas doesn't just call Jesus Lord and God. He says to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. If you were just an all-knowing God, I would acknowledge you as God, but I wouldn't dare come near you. Because I know I deserve your judgment. And I know you know everything I need to be judged for. But because you are a wounded God, because you have holes in your hands and your feet, because you've been pierced for me, because you died for me, I can call you my Lord and my God. You are not only a God who looks down at the suffering world and feels nothing. You're a God who enters into the suffering of a suffering world so that you can save us from it. My Lord and my God. Then the other thing that we see Thomas doing, notice Jesus says, come, see, come feel. Notice that it never records that Thomas actually does. He sees, but he never actually pushes his hand, his finger into Jesus' hands, or his hand into Jesus' side. See, we all, have, we all come to God with conditions, right? We all come with our conditions. If you do this, then I'll believe. If you do that, then I'll believe. We all come to God with conditions. But when we come to Jesus, and when God in His grace opens our eyes to see Jesus as He really is, we need to drop our conditions. Like Thomas, we need to drop our conditions, fall down and say, my Lord and my God. Because here's the thing. If you say, I will obey you, God, I will serve you, God, if, then whatever follows the if is your true God. Whatever follows the if is your true Savior. Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll believe in you if you give me a husband or a wife, if you give me a spouse. Well, then that husband and wife is your God. Because that's the thing you want more than you want God. That thing is your idol. Lord, if you show me this, then I'll believe. Well, whatever this is, that is your God. That condition is your God. You need to drop it. And come to God for who He is. Not just for what He can do for you. No other God will save us. No other God can save us because no other God will give their life for you. Jesus is the only one. Every other God will demand that you give your life for them. Jesus is the only God who gave his life for us.
Okay, so the blessedness of unseeing believers. I just want to quickly end off. I'm not going to take too long. <clears throat> we don't have to be eyewitnesses in order to believe. 1 Peter 1 verse 8, which is a parallel uh, passage, and 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Which is exactly the same thing that John says. We just we don't have to be the eyewitnesses to believe. We just have to read the eyewitness accounts in order to believe. John 21 verse 24, just after the next chapter, it says, This is the disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple who is bearing witness of these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. If we read the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies that are fulfilled, if we read the testimony of Jesus himself, if we read the testimony of the eyewitnesses who, by the way, died for their eyewitness account and signed their eyewitness account in their own blood, then we have sufficient evidence. Even though we don't see Jesus physically, we have sufficient evidence to believe. John 20 verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe in Je uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Life in His name. And I think maybe this morning there are some doubting Thomases, some skeptics who are realizing the basis for my skepticism is not justified. If I, were, if I were as skeptical about my skepticism as I was about the Bible, I would not be so skeptical. If I required as much evidence for my skepticism as I require for the resurrection, I would believe in the resurrection because there's more evidence for it. So my challenge to you is hear the eyewitness testimonies. Hear Thomas's, the skeptic. Hear his testimony. See him fall down before the one he didn't believe in. See him fall down before the one that he said, I, I know I saw him being crucified. I saw the spear being stuck into his side. I, I, I'm not going to believe unless I see that. That it's the same one who rose from the dead. Hear him say, my Lord and my God. Undergo that same radical paradigm shift that he went, underwent. And also call Jesus Lord and God. Because if you believe that he is Lord and God, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you will have life in his name. Just one last thing. just want to reiterate this. Remember, that this Jesus, who knew everything about Thomas, knows everything about you. And he still loves you. He knows everything about you. All those things that other people don't know. All those things that happen behind closed doors. All those things you are afraid of and ashamed of. He knows all of that. And he was still willing to die for you. That is how much he loves you. We are more sinful than we realize but we are also more loved than we realize 